I hope you're enjoying your uh, summer schedule. I know at church, at the very least, we have a, a summer schedule for some of you. Um, obviously, you're not in school, but you at least have grandchildren, and uh, it's a different schedule. Uh, we don't have Sunday school this particular uh, season of summer, but we've got extra time for ministry. Um, as the youth are gathering some extra times, we've got um, a mission trip coming up. Then, of course, everyone's going to enjoy loving on children during VBS. Um, some of the highlights of that for, for us adults is just the fellowship that we get to have for all the cooks in the kitchen getting to hang out for hours and hours. And uh, whoever you partner with and running your children around, uh, you get to spend the whole week with each other, whether it's loving on active children or trying to get kids who don't listen, listen, etc. Um, I want to start today by asking you about the Ten Commandments. I want to start today by asking you, what comes to your mind when you think of the Ten Commandments? And while we won't be in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 4, we are going to grow in our knowledge of the Ten Commandments. There's no doubt, though, that even though we are familiar with the Ten Commandments, we're going to learn some new things, but it's not just about knowledge. Uh, but it's great to learn new things. I myself have been uh, enjoying studying it, and it became clear that before the Israelites, something I learned, something, sometimes you hear things, but you're like, oh, I'm not very sure. Before the Israelites got the Ten Commandments in writing, they got it in verbal format on Mount Sinai. And that's uh, something that's important because they experienced God's holiness on that mountain. Like I said, it's not just about learning new things about the Ten Commandments, but it's about growing in our conviction in God's Word and being more and more sure of what we believe so that we have clarity in who we believe in, right? So we're going to be looking at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 mostly today. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians 3. And in, in Deuteronomy 4, it's really kind of like a, a preface to the Ten Commandments, really more like an explanation of the first two of the Ten Commandments. Don't uh, worship the Lord your God. And number two, don't have any idols. Because the Ten Commandments is really more like a list, isn't it? But we have the book of Moses, Deuteronomy especially, as well as Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to explain the Ten Commandments to us. But as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 today, I want to make sure, we're going to repeat this throughout the message today, that we look at it not as an old covenant saint, but as a new covenant Christian. We're in a series this summer or this, this year, whenever I'm preaching, I'm preaching in a series called Never Leave the Basics. Today, we're, we're in the middle of a three-part sermon series about the Ten Commandments, really before the Ten Commandments in, in Deuteronomy 4. But for example, when we went over Psalm 23, we talked about how, what it means as a New Covenant Christian to see the Lord as my shepherd. We don't just study uh, animal husbandry and shepherding and learn valuable lessons about shepherding. Is there value in that? Absolutely. But we especially saw that as a New Covenant Christian, who is our shepherd? Christ is the good shepherd. And that makes all the difference. And so we're going to be looking at 
Deuteronomy 4, through a new covenant lens. And in 2 Corinthians 3, you see an explanation of what the new covenant looks like in looking at the old covenant. It compares the old covenant to the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3 that we read this morning. You don't have to turn there. We've already read it, and you're familiar with it. It's kind of a, an unpopular passage. I would say an unfamiliar passage. Um, it's not one that I think we're all super familiar with. I was reading it uh, recently in preparation for Widow's Harvest. We're going to be studying the book of 2 Corinthians as, as we gather uh, in the evenings uh, for some fellowship and some teaching. And 2 Corinthians has as its theme, doing ministry in God's power. That's the theme of 2 Corinthians. So we're going to be doing ministry we want to make sure we're doing it in God's power. But here in 2 Corinthians 3, it's talking about ministry especially. It's not necessarily talking about it doing in, in God's power. Certainly that's part of it. It's almost like it's lifted out of Hebrews or something, this particular passage, or, or maybe a part of Romans or Galatians. Um, but it's important for Paul to see and to explain to us that when we're doing ministry, we're not doing it in our own power, of course, but we're doing it as new covenant Christians. And so he wants them to understand we are not in the old covenant. We are in the new covenant. But how is the old covenant described here in 2 Corinthians 3? It's almost strange to us. It's called a ministry of condemnation. It's called a ministry of death. It's a letter that kills and it has in mind specifically the Ten Commandments, talking about something written and carved in stone. But he also talks about the Old Covenant. I mean, we've heard of children's ministry, youth ministry, men's ministry. How about the ministry of condemnation? It's right here. It's the ministry of condemnation. It's contrasted, though, in 2 Corinthians 3, to the ministry of righteousness, which is Christ's ministry to us in the new covenant. And so, why is it called the ministry of condemnation? Well, as we study the Ten Commandments, as we understand at least two of them, I want to make sure that we don't leave here thinking, I'm going to, that we don't leave here first and foremost thinking, I'm going to try to do a better job of keeping the Ten Commandments. Surely that's valuable, right? But if it's called the ministry of condemnation, then the first and primary point we need to learn from the Ten Commandments is that I fail at keeping God's commandments. That is the primary and first thing. It's really like the Old Testament has the question, what do I do with my sin? How do I know I have sin? Well, because I've broken God's law. And where do we find the answer? In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, right? Because I don't keep God's commandments. As a Christian, that's the humility that we walk in, that we are forgiven of our sins. So Spencer prayed it well, Lord, forgive us of our sins. We have not met your requirements. Though the, the path of a Christian is one that's on the narrow path. One who, when he gets on the, narrow, on the wide path, repents of it, right? 
and walks together with other believers. But ultimately, this law, this old covenant, is fulfilled in Christ. Yes, it's a ministry of condemnation, but it's been transferred to a ministry of righteousness in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus was very concerned with understanding this in his first public sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. He's all over the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, in the Ten Commandments especially, and giving us a reinterpretation of, of them. Christ has fulfilled the moral law by keeping it completely. Christ has fulfilled the Ten Commandments by keeping them for us. That's the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The requirements are still the same. You must keep God's law. But the good news, of course, after having the bad news, is that now Christ has said, I will keep those requirements for you. He is our righteousness. And because he has lived a perfect moral life, even though he was tempted as we are, did not once give in to it, he is thus the perfect sacrifice. He's also our priest. He's also the perfect apostle. And one day we will reign with him in his future kingdom. And so the moral law is still written in the DNA of creation, even on your soul. In fact, it's still written right before us today. As today we have the Spirit of God inside of us and the Word of God in front of us. Let me just put it in more basic terms. Right and wrong still exist. That's a, a needed message in our culture, is it not? But really it's a needed message in the heart of every human being. How does the book of Judges conclude? The conclusions of books are, are telling. What's the last sentence in the book of Judges? Anybody know it? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Who cares what's right and wrong? I'm going to decide it. That's what we rationalize with. But no, right and wrong still exist. It's written in our hearts, and it's written in God's Word. And so while this law does bring condemnation, there is still right and wrong. What is the book of James all concerned with? Your works, your deeds, doing. No, he's not as much concerned with believing. Who handles that for us? Paul handles that for us in Romans. But James says this in chapter 4. He says, do not speak evil against the law, because you are not the lawgiver. And there has to be a transition in our lives, not only to confess that we're sinners, but to believe that the Ten Commandments are actually good for me. Not that I have to keep them, but that I want to. That's a huge just shift in your thinking, to say, I do believe they're actually good for me. So turning to Deuteronomy chapter 4, we covered last time verses 1 through 14. Today we're going to be covering starting in verse 15 through 31. And then next week we'll come and look at verse, starting in verse 32. As I reread chapter 4 verses 1 through 14, where we're told about God delivering the Ten Commandments to the people in verbal form, 
on Mount Sinai where the people had to prepare for it two days ahead of time, cleanse themselves, purify their bodies, representing the purity in our souls. As I reread it, I was struck by the contrast in verses 3 and 4. Let me just read it to you again. Deuteronomy 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. These are that generation that perished in the desert. 24,000 of them died at Baal Peor for associating themselves in sexual immorality with the women from Moab who were an idolatrous people. But these, in verse 4, who have been wandering for 38 years, plus the two at Mount Sinai, equals 40. But you, who held fast to the Lord your God, are all alive today. That song we sang today was beautifully set into context as Van led us and said, are we going to be the ones who are held fast by Christ? Yes, we are. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, is held fast to finish the race that they have started. And I praise the Lord that I am still here today. I praise the Lord that you are still here today. That I'm still here going to church. Every time, I just almost want to pinch myself to remind I'm still here. The Lord has kept me faithful. And we're encouraged by those around us that are still walking by those who have walked for decades and decades, their entire lives, still walking. And it causes us, as Rob said a few weeks ago, to be very careful in how we live our lives. As we see people that we've known, maybe even some who have grown up here, wander away on that broad path. Could that be you? Could that be me? We better ask that question, right? It most certainly could be. May I be careful in living my life to God's glory. So that's where we pick up in verse 15 today. He tells us to watch yourselves very carefully. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the passage. Lord, I pray that every single one of us here today would be faithful to you for the last breath that we take. Lord, we pray for those who aren't here today, who whether they're normally here or they were here in the past, you would draw them to yourself wherever they may be. Lord, I pray that today we would be drawn one step closer to you for our process of sanctification for each individual in here today, Lord, drawn closer to you. Whether we learn more knowledge so that we can be convicted or whether we grow deeper in our conviction of our sin, and even more confident in the forgiveness that is offered to us in Christ. To your praise, amen. Follow along with me as I read verses 14 to 31 of Deuteronomy 4. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire, Beware, lest you act corruptly. He's going to go on to describe creation in reverse order, starting at day six with man working his way back to anything. Don't worship anything in creation. First, by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, 
the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of a winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps, such as a snake, on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me, Moses, because of you, Israel, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. The next two verses are really a summary of this whole chapter, okay? Verse 23. Take care. Again, this refrain of being careful, of listening. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Lest you make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Verses 25 through 31 talk about forgiveness when you fail and you do worship an idol, whether one in your own heart or whatever it may be. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter among the, you among the peoples, that is to Babylon, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood, stone, the work of human hands that neither see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is a very rich text. There is a lot in here. And we're going to make the most of it today. He says to watch yourself carefully. Watch yourself that you would not worship creation. Nothing in creation. Only worship the creator. Watch yourself very carefully. This is the first commandment to worship the Lord your God only. Worship the Creator. But the second commandment is to not have any idols. Don't worship creation. And the first commandment is who you worship. The second commandment is how you're worshiping who you worship. And so then also the second commandment, don't have any idols, has two parts to it, two meanings, two applications to it. 
First, don't use an image to worship God. Don't use an image to worship God. So as Christians, we don't have a picture of Jesus over here, and we don't bow down to Jesus, and we don't look at Jesus and have it help our prayers, right? We live by faith. Jesus is described in the Bible, and there are no pictures in the Bible. But second, what it means is don't put anything in place of God. Don't create anything that would come before God, thus making it an idol, thus making it something that you would worship. And so in this section, it's especially talking about being careful that you don't have any idols that you're worshiping. You're supposed to watch, so you're supposed to listen, to take care, and to keep your soul diligently. Now, looking at this passage as a New Covenant Christian, what does that mean? Where else do we see this in the Scriptures? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions on how to take the Lord's Supper. And what are part of the instructions for taking the Lord's Supper, which we're doing today? To examine yourself. To see, am I living my life carefully before the Lord? And at that time, your covenant is renewed with the Lord. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're renewing that covenant. No, Christ isn't being sacrificed all over again, but it's a, it's a remembrance. And it's also a very meaningful thing that says, just as Christ died on the cross with his real flesh and real blood and paid for my sins, and didn't stay dead, and came back three days later, so do I truly, by faith, believe in Christ Jesus. And in fact, Deuteronomy itself is a renewal of the covenant. Deuteronomy 5 is the second time the Ten Commandments are given to the Israelites. It's a renewal before they cross over to possess the land. And so as a New Covenant Christian, we walk carefully by examining ourselves by keeping short accounts. And by praising the Lord, Lord, this is a bad theological statement, but it's helpful. Lord, I'm still a Christian. Not that you can ever lose that, but Lord, I'm still walking with you. Every time you take that Lord's Supper, it's a solemn thing, it's a serious thing, and you leave it with assurance of what? Assurance of salvation. Before we would ever cross over Jordan ourselves. Assurance to boldly proclaim the gospel that is working in my life, but not perfectly, right? And that's why we confess our sins. Well, here he's telling Israel to watch carefully because you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb at Mount Sinai, but you experienced the holiness of God. They set up boundaries. They weren't supposed to come close to it. In the end, they're like, look, God, please don't speak to us anymore. Just let Moses speak to us. As their mediator, pointing to a future mediator of a better covenant, Christ. And you need to beware lest you act corruptly. You have experienced the goodness of God. We have confessed our sins, but we need to make sure that we never neglect the fellowship of God's people, nor neglect reading His Word or spending time in prayer so that we can make sure that we confess our sins and are taught 
and retaught to stay on that narrow path. What does it mean to act corruptly? Well, in Romans 3, there's a familiar passage just before we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a swath of about 10 10 verses of uh, some psalms that, that Paul quotes. Let me read this to you, talking about corruption. Just listen to it. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But let me start over because we're just pointing fingers everywhere, right? But let's just, let's just point it back at ourselves. I'm going to read this. You just follow along, listen to it. I'm going to put it in the first person singular, okay? I am not righteous. No, not even me. I don't understand. I don't seek after God. I have turned aside. Together with others, I have become worthless. I don't do good, not even once. My throat is an open grave. I use my tongue to deceive, and even the venom of vipers is on my lips. My mouth is full of cursing, bitterness. My feet, swift to shed blood and to hate people, right? My path is filled with ruin and misery. The way of peace, I don't know it. And there is no fear of God before my eyes. That's the sin that we confess to the Lord. We need to understand, though, that reading that as a New Covenant Christian, we say that just like Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes. Life is meaningless unless you have God in your life. And I have no peace. I don't even know how to fear God unless God gives me that peace, unless God gives me that fear of Him. So again, we we see that ministry of condemnation, and we admit, Lord, I have acted corruptly. And we'll get to the forgiveness part, right? But how do we act corruptly? Well, he goes on, by making images. By making images. Well, we don't want to do what we find in Romans 1, which is exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. We don't want to make that exchange. We want to worship the one true God. And so we're warned here not to make an image. Starts out with images in the likeness of male or female. That is straight from Genesis 1 and 2. That likeness, that image, words. And so, what are we tempted to worship? Probably what we're tempted to worship is is other people and pleasing other people. And when we get our worth from another man, another woman, that person has become an idol in our lives. Who do we live for? Who do we please? But I would add to that, specifically, that for men, their tendency can be putting it very strongly when they get their worth from a woman, and they want to worship that woman for her beauty. For a woman, what can that temptation be? Put it in very strong terms. When she decorates herself with beauty, so much so that she gets her worth from her beauty. 
and says, men, worship me. Man, worship me. Even in a a husband and wife relationship, they can start to idolize their relationship and their family time above serving God. But why would we be worshiping somebody else or worshiping having somebody worship us is because the number one idol is who? It's me. The number one idol is yourself. If you're worshiping, if you have an idol in your life, it's because you've put yourself on the throne of your heart. You can't break the latter eight of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first two every single time. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Gods at War, Little G, Gods at War, talks about dealing with sin in your life, those latter eight of the Ten Commandments. He says, you're just going to struggle with it, whatever kind of rules you would have with it, and dealing with your sin, and striving towards righteousness, if you don't first make sure you remove the idol on the throne of your heart. Many times in sharing the gospel, we will draw a heart and say, this is you before God. We'll put a chair there or a throne and say, before you're a Christian, you're on that throne. And you have to remove yourself from that throne by confessing faith in Christ, by repenting of your sins, by believing that God is good, that He is right and I am wrong, and putting Christ on that throne. That's a good way to understand our response to the gospel. But in our sanctification, what do we often do? We, we take Christ down from that throne in our heart. And we still in our heart because we're a Christian and we can't not be a Christian. But what do we do? We put an idol up there. Who is that idol? Almost every time it's ourselves. More often we try to share that throne on our hearts with God. And Jesus will not have it. Heath Lambert, in his book, Finally Free, Dealing with Sexual Purity, has has, uh, described three things in dealing with sin that is applicable to to many different kinds of sins. He says there are three categories, three ways to deal with sin. First, you need to deal with the time that you have to sin. So are you putting your time in the right spot? Or do you have too much free time? Or where are your focuses? Who are your friends? Is it available is the second thing. Is whatever your temptation is, is it available? Then the third one is the most difficult one, and that is the desire. The desire for that idol. And I think that's what, what Kyle Eidelman, his last name's Eidelman, talking about idols somehow. Kyle Eidelman is, is talking about. He's saying, as long as that desire is there, and as long as that idol is on the throne. You can work on the time and the availability of your sins, uh, resources, whatever they may be, but, but until that desire is gone, until that idol, if you've knocked it out, you've repented of it, you've recognized it, you've seen it, whatever it may be, and those idols change as time moves on. Sometimes, though, there are also habitual sins that we, we struggle with. But as a Christian, when we fall in a puddle of sin, what do we do? We recognize it, we confess it, we clean up, we go to Christ, and we say, I'm not going to walk that way again. 
that's watching out for the time and the availability. But in order to deal with all the other idols in our life, we have to deal with the idol of ourself first and remove that. And, and that's not a one-time thing, is it? You automatically find yourself putting those idols back up on your throne, trying to share that throne in your heart with Christ. God will not have it. He will convict us of our sin, and he will guide us, and he will help us. Jumping down quickly to verse 24, that is why he says he is a consuming fire and a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. He wants all of us, all of your heart. And so he goes through the rest of the different things in creation that you could be tempted to worship, things that you could make as idols. Even the stars in heaven. But these things are things that God has given to all people on the earth. As in, the pagans run after such things. But you don't worship the things in creation or yourself. By contrast, verse 20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt. That is, he has saved you from the land of slavery so that you would worship the one true God. And in power, with his outstretched right hand, he saves his people. And that is who we belong to. That word iron furnace describes that sin for what it is. It's bondage. It's heat. It's not enjoyable. But what did the Israelites want to do once they were out in the desert? They wanted to go back there. They didn't care if they were in in bondage. They wanted to eat their their steak with garlic. It literally says garlic in there. Like They wanted garlic. Like fresh garlic, it's a key to good cooking. You shake it in there. It's like, and especially if it's more than six months old, like you look at the expiration date on your garlic thing, and I mean, if it's from when you got married, like just throw it away. It actually makes the food taste worse, okay? But fresh garlic makes a difference. The key to good cooking is fresh ingredients. Israelites knew that, and that was their idol in that moment. They wanted good food back from Egypt. It was an iron furnace. Don't listen to the deception of sin and the idols that are in our lives. It is not good. But God has called them out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. As you are this day. When we were preaching through Ephesians, Rob pointed out in chapter 1 that it's not just that you have obtained an inheritance, but it's better understood, he said, that we have been made into an inheritance. And that's accurate. You are God's treasured possession because God... This is good news. God takes trash and turns it into treasure. We are his inheritance, his people, as you are this day. Furthermore, now there's this contrast in verses 21 and 22 about Moses. Moses doesn't get to go into the land. I don't want to get into that a lot today because it's mentioned in, it happens in Numbers 20. It's also in Deuteronomy 3 and Deuteronomy 32. Moses in Numbers 20 breaks faith with God. 
He is not perfect in his faithfulness. He seems to get angry at the people for complaining. Moses has got a case of self-righteousness going on. You Israelites are complaining against the God. He's mad at them. So instead of speaking to the rock, what's he do? He hits it twice. Seems to be very firm with the people. He's not being pastoral in that moment. He's being way too harsh with the people. And Moses is still dealing with a little bit of bitterness towards it. You can see that he's a little bit off here when he talks about, he starts to kind of blame his sin on them. It's very interesting. The Lord was angry with me because of you. Now, when you look at Deuteronomy 32, God doesn't say that. He talks about Moses' sin. And, and God has some strong words for Moses in the previous chapter. He says, enough from you. Do not speak to me on this matter again. You're not going to the promised land. That's your consequence. And it's sad. It's a sad moment for Moses. He's led him for his whole life. He loves these people. But he doesn't get to go over to the promised land. It's a good land. What I want us to see here as New Covenant Christians is that Moses is not the perfect leader. Who is the perfect mediator of a covenant? And that is Jesus only. He's the one that kept the Ten Commandments, all of them. Moses just gave them, or delivered them, really. And all the kings, all the prophets, all the leaders in the Old Testament, not a one of them is perfect. In fact, I think that's why First and Second Chronicles are written. It's one of the last books in the Old Covenant to be written. They're looking back saying, who is the prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18 that is like Moses? Can't find him. Nobody's perfect. Read the last chapter of Nehemiah. And you'll find that that man pulled people's hair out. He hit them, and he yelled at them. So, you're going to talk about leadership, and Nehemiah being a leader who loves his people, well, in the end, he was guilty of abuse. Why was he so mad, though? Similar to Moses, he was mad at the people because they were intermarrying with idolatrous nations. So mad about it. He needed to repent of his own corruption. So ultimately, we see that Christ is that perfect mediator who allows us to boldly go before the throne. And so he says, furthermore, in verse 21, I don't get to go, but skipping down to the middle of 22, furthermore, I don't get to go, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Don't miss the good in here. Don't miss the fact that for us, ultimate good comes in crossing over Jordan and taking possession of eternity there. And if you can hear this message today, it's guaranteed that in 90 years or less, you're going to cross over to that Jordan and take possession of that good land. For most of us, it'll be less than 90 years, right? That's not only a sad thing, it's a good thing. This is our hope. We look forward to it. You shall go over and take possession of the good land. That is my calling. That is my destination on the journey that I'm on, and I'm not on it alone, am I? Holy Spirit inside of me and the body of Christ around me. 
Verses 23 and 24 are just a summary of this whole section. Take care, examine yourself, be careful, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. Again, today we're taking the Lord's Supper to remember the covenant that was made that is better than the old one where the requirements are kept by God, by Jesus. Remember the covenant which he made with you and made... Okay, don't forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made and, and don't make a carved image. The form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's a jealous God because he's passionate for his people. He's a jealous God because the other side of the coin of his jealousy is that he loves us. And he's passionate about his glory. And he works all things for our good and his glory. So we trust that God is good. And then we come to the second half of, of our sermon today, starting in verse 25, talking about forgiveness. Talking about forgiveness. When you father children and children's children have grown up in the land, if you act corruptly, and he moves on to stronger in verse 20c, you will utterly perish. You will not live long in it. You will be utterly destroyed. This is Moses in full prophetic mode making a direct prophecy that after about 1,500 years or at least or so being in Canaan, the Assyrians will come down and destroy the northern kingdom and the Babylonians will come and take the southern kingdom into captivity. Two tribes of Benjamin and Judah along with Levi. And it's sad. You will not live long. You will be scattered. You will be few in number. This is called the remnant. As Jesus tells us, wide is the path that goes to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And few find it. Which leads us to praise the Lord that I am counted among his people. Praise him forever. What will be the consequence for them being in Babylon for those 70 years in Persia? Well, now you're going to serve these gods of wood, stone, the work of human hands. Isn't that what brought them there? Worshipping idols? Now they're getting what they asked for. Now God will not share his throne with an idol. He won't have Israel have a temple in the middle of Jerusalem and then go to the hills and worship your idols. He said, fine, we'll just destroy this temple. We're done with the old covenant. He's going to bring a new covenant. If we were to look at the book of 1 John, it concludes with this one line that seems out of place, but it's the theme of the Scriptures. The last sentence in 1 John says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. It's a theme in the Scriptures. Keep yourself from idols. Does that motivate you to say no to the rest of your sins? When you're tempted with whatever it may be, do you see it as idolatry or just breaking God's law? Little children, children of God, keep yourself from idols. By contrast, how does John start out his letter in 1 John? 
He says, we have seen, we have touched him, we have heard him. This mentions everything except we've eaten him. Okay? Jesus is real flesh and bones. These idols in verse 28 and 29, they can't see, they can't hear, they don't eat, they don't smell. Listen to a description of idols from Deuteronomy 32. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, little g gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. Instead of being mindful of the rock, a theme in this chapter. Who is that rock? Corinthians tells us that rock is Christ. And while John tells us also in the beginning of his letter to not sin, he then goes on to say, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have one who's in our place, a propitiation, Jesus Christ. And so we know that we will sin till the day we die. Why will we sin till the day we die? Well, Paul tells us that we have this flesh in us that is awaiting a new body. Yes, I've been born above above in my spirit. Nothing changed in my body when I became a Christian except that I have a new owner and I am destined for a new body. But the source of our sin is our flesh. And that's what Satan and the world appeal to. And so we will sin till the day we die. But there is such great hope in the forgiveness that is proclaimed in the gospel and in God's word. Every time we hear it preached and every time we read it, every time we remember it, every time we pray to our God. He says in verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. That is, if you search with him, for him with all your heart, with all your soul, reminding us of language from Jeremiah 29, to seek the Lord with all that we are and you will find him. That is, when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. When you are in tribulation, are we going to raise our hands like this to God? Or will we seek him knowing that I fail his commandments and say, Lord, please forgive me. Lord, thank you for my destination. Lord, thank you for my salvation. And may he move us more quickly from this to this every week. Amen? And how will they return in verse 30? I want you to see the combination here of return and the voice of God. You cannot return to God unless you hear his voice. And how do you hear God's voice? It's not too difficult, actually. You just open up your Bible and start reading it in English. Or you just start listening to it being proclaimed amongst God's people. And then with the Word of God in front of you, may the Spirit of God come inside of you to inhabit you. And as a Christian on their path, how do we continually live a life of humble repentance? 
We hear his voice. And how did the Israelites hear his voice in Babylon? This right here would be a, a prophecy of, of somebody like Daniel in Babylon calling them to the Lord as Daniel himself reads Isaiah and Jeremiah. As Jeremiah sends letters to those in captivity, even later as Ezekiel proclaims the word to them. And for us, we have the full counsel of God. Our church's name is, is good. We are New Covenant Bible Church. We're not New Covenant New Testament Bible Church, right? It's, it's the whole Bible. And that is how we return to the Lord, treasuring all of His Word, enjoying every sermon series that we go to, whatever book we're preaching through. Right now, Revelation, and I know we're all enjoying that. We know that the Lord has granted us mercy on behalf of Christ for His glory. He will not leave us nor destroy us. And He won't forget the covenant with our fathers, that is, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that He swore to them. And ultimately, that covenant is fulfilled in the new covenant. So that Old Testament saints are saved how? Old Testament saints aren't saved by the Old Covenant. Old Testament saints are included in the New Covenant. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And so today we renew that covenant. Today we renew that covenant by taking the Lord's Supper. If you haven't had, um, if you don't have one of these in your hand and you're taking the Lord's Supper today, go ahead and stand up and you can go grab one now. There's some right here and some in the back. Some of them um, are gluten-free, and they're labeled as such if you would like that. So we're going to take uh, just a minute, and we're going to just spend some time in, in prayer on your own, examining your own life. If you're somebody who is in Christ, who is in Christ, you are called to renew that covenant. That first sign or symbol of that new covenant is baptism. How often do you get baptized? Once. That's the New Testament mandate. But how often are we to take the Lord's Supper? Often as we come together. We're called to remember that covenant. Remembering with joy, that in the new covenant, the requirements have been met by Christ, and that I am called to walk in obedience following in his footsteps. So take just a moment, I'll lead us in prayer in a minute, but go ahead and take just a minute in quiet prayer to the Lord in examining our own lives.
Father, as we examine our own lives, we examine them in light of your law. We examine them in light of the Ten Commandments. Lord, we see that, that we have worshipped your creation. Lord, we have worshipped that image that is a man or a woman when we look in the mirror. And it is me, selfish me, that I have been worshipping. Lord, we thank you, though, for calling us to forgiveness, that we have heard your voice. And that your spirit has brought into our hearts. I pray you would help us this next week to walk in obedience towards you, knowing that we have been forgiven of our past, present, and future sins, motivating us to worship you and to walk in obedience on that narrow path. Lord, believing that the Ten Commandments are good for us, thanking you that Christ has fulfilled them where we have failed and repenting where we fall short. I pray that together we would be the body of Christ who helps each other on this journey towards heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, this is my, Jesus says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread and eat it. Then we come to the cup where Jesus said in the upper room, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Go ahead and take and drink this. Would you stand with me as we sing doxology and acapella? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Have a good Lord's Day.